I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I have here um, Dr. Kamara Jones, who is, I'm just so blown away to have her here. She's a, a, a celebrity in her own right. She is a family practice doctor and epidemiologist, an anti-racist activist, a renowned public speaker, and she has been so gracious to agree to um, let me interview her today. So Dr. Jones, thank you so, so much for being here. Could you tell my audience a little bit about yourself and... Um, your interest in, in anti-racism and activism. Okay, well, you did a good job in terms of the, the highlights. I am a family doc and I'm a, an epidemiologist. And it's actually out of those two streams that I started wondering uh, what all these racial health disparities that we were looking at were due to. And, and because of my analysis that race is a rough proxy for social class, rougher for culture, meaningless for genes, but a precise measure of the social interpretation of how one looks in a race-conscious society, that is what actually led me to focus my work for the past several decades on naming, measuring, and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the nation. So that's who I am, you know, never studied sociology or, you know, political science or any of those things, but it's out of that very medical and public health orientation, but asking the critical questions of why, and then why again and why, that, that I've come to understand that with COVID-19, as well as with infant mortality differences by race, you know, the numbers of our babies dying before their first birthday, or the numbers of mothers dying in relation to childbirth or strokes and all of that, that racism is actually the root cause of all of these so-called race-associated or differences in health status that we call racial health disparities. And it's so powerful because when you, when you look at the news, they kind of stop with, oh, it's because it's poverty, right? It's access, but they don't really go into that next level of, yeah, because it's, because it's racism. So I'd like to say something about that actually, because, because um, people, we are so ahistorical. In this society, we act as if the present were disconnected from the past, mm -hmm. and as if the current distribution of advantage and disadvantage were just a happenstance, or worse, that it's because people are lazy or stupid, or, you know, we're very narrowly focused on the individual. I actually probably, it sounds like I'm going to articulate in a minute seven different values-based barriers we have to achieving health equity, but just on that thing when people say, oh, well, it's not really racism, it's poverty, um, that reflects these three things, the narrow focus on the individual that makes systems and structures invisible or irrelevant, the fact that we're ahistorical as a nation, and the fact that we endorse this myth of meritocracy. So we, and it's because people in this country are reluctant to acknowledge, first of all, that racism is foundational in our nation's history, but second of all, that it continues to be alive and well and have profound impacts on the health and well-being of the nation. So anything that people can do to say, oh, well, don't talk about racism, it's this or that or the other, uh, that's the first response. And I think part of that is that people think that when you acknowledge the existence of racism, you are calling them a racist. Yes. 
Yes, that's huge. And I think that the first time someone told me that I was privileged, uh-huh. um, that was a huge moment for me because I equated that as being called racist. I didn't really, this was a few years ago and I was privileged enough to not know what privilege was. And so I, I took a deep dive to figure out what that was and realized that that doesn't mean that I'm, that wasn't equal to me being racist, but that. But that racism privileges you, that racism puts you in a position of privilege. Yeah, yeah. And that, that you don't even need to embrace and many people don't recognize it, right? But people enjoy it. You know, yeah. if you are living as white in this country, then you are, because of this system, you're given this privilege and you can't shrug it off. And so actually, you know, you and I were talking earlier about um, understanding privilege and using it. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go into a conversation. Sure, let's do it. Because I mean, <laughs> I know for me, I decided to do these interviews and reached out on some Facebook groups with doctors that I know. And I was like, Hey, do you want to like, and I think because I'm a white doctor, I have this privilege where I can even have the gumption to reach out to you who I saw your Ted talk. And I heard you were at a, I was at a, um, an event where you gave a, a, a virtual event where you gave a talk and you were incredible. And I just reached out, but like, to even think that I have the right to do that is privileged. And then, and then also the, a lot of these interviews that I'm doing, like, I think people are like, oh, you're a white person talking about race. This is kind of cool. I want to get my message out there. So, but it's still my privilege that I'm even able to have these connections and conversations. So what are, talk more about privilege and, 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 and ways, ways that, that people can use their privilege for good rather than having it necessarily be this like label of shame. But what are some ways people can, because you love to, you love to teach and speak and um, True story. Yes. So, so what's to help, help us understand what, what privilege is, why it doesn't have to necessarily be like a curse right. or an insult. I think what I'll do to, to address that, it's going to be a three-part answer. Okay, great. <laughs> so, so I might go for a while. Right. And I hear the three parts just so that you can be prepared. I, I would love, thank you for that invitation. I would love to share one of my allegories on issues of race and racism. I now have 20 or 20 to 30 that are like in my computer and about four or five that are in the public domain. This one I call dual reality, a restaurant saga. Mm -hmm. After I tell that story, I actually want to then show how it illustrates racism and the three different impacts that racism has. One being that it unfairly advantages other individuals and communities. Okay. And then after that, I'd like to talk about, but yeah, in the real world, if you understand that because you are living as white in this society today, that you do have some unearned white skin privilege, how can you use that for good? Mm-hmm. So the story. So, yeah. this, <laughs> so this one, like, um, like many of my allegories, is based on something that happened in my own real life. And this one is, if I have four minutes or so to talk to people about racism, people who, especially people who might be um, dubious that racism really exists because everything in their life has argued that this is not the case, um, this is the story I tell. So the real life example- Really quickly, just to say to people listening, there's supposed to be some air show. It's May 2nd. There may be airplanes flying by loudly. So if that happens, we'll pause or whatever. But I'd want to just prepare you if that happens, because it's about- maybe about to start and I didn't want it to interrupt your flow as you're going into your um, okay. story. Okay, now please start. Yes. So as a medical student, as a first year medical student, I was incredibly 
uh, diligent and studious throughout medical school, always in my life. But here I am, first year medical student, one Saturday, studying long and hard, hit the books, and then some of my friends come over. And so they join me and all of us get to studying long and hard. And it gets late and we get hungry and I have no food in the apartment, which was typical for me. And my friends understood that. So they were like, okay, Kamara, we got this. Let's go into town and find something to eat. So we do, we walk into town and we find a restaurant and we walk in and we sit down, the menus are presented, we order our food, food is served, and there we are eating. And so you're like, really? That's supposed to tell me something about racism? So hold on, I haven't gotten to the main We'll get there, we'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. Here we are sitting in this restaurant eating. As I'm eating, I look across the room and I notice a sign which was a startling revelation to me about racism. So now I've intrigued you and now you're like, where did you go to medical school? And you know, Dr. Jones, what did the sign say? Let me tell you what the sign said. Sign said, open. So now I know I've lost many of you. So let me recap. Here we are sitting in a restaurant eating. I look across the room and I see a sign that says open. And if I hadn't thought anything more about it, I would have assumed that other hungry people would walk in, sit down, order their food, and eat. But because I knew something about the two-sided nature of those signs, I recognized that now, because of the hour, the restaurant was indeed closed. And that other hungry people just a few feet away from me, but on the other side of the sign, would not be able to come in, sit down, order their food, and eat. And that's when I understood how racism structures open-closed signs in our society that racism structures, if you will, a dual reality. And for those who are sitting inside the restaurant at the table of opportunity eating, and they look up and they see a sign that says open, they don't even recognize that there's a two-sided sign going on because it is difficult for any of us to recognize a system of inequity that privileges us. So it is difficult for men to recognize male privilege and sexism. It is difficult for white Americans to recognize white privilege and racism. It's difficult for all Americans to recognize our American privilege in the global context, uh, which is manifest in many ways. And I think actually this corona, this COVID-19 thing is because I think that our president and leadership thought we were going to continue to have American privilege and the virus wasn't going to affect us, but I digress. So, So (laughs) <laughs> Until like the day before. <laughs> I know, right, right. But, but for people inside the restaurant, it is difficult if you're always sitting at the table of opportunity eating and you look up and you see a sign that says open, it's difficult to understand the two-sided nature of that sign. Mm-hmm. But people on the other side of the sign, people on the outside are very well aware that there's a two-sided sign going on because it proclaims clothes to them, but they can look through the window and see people inside eating. So back inside the restaurant to those who ask, is there really a two-sided sign? Does racism really exist? I say, I know it's hard for you to know when you only see open. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's part of your privilege not to have to know. But once you do know, you can choose to act. So it's not a scary thing to name racism. It's actually an empowering thing to name racism. And in fact, it doesn't even compel you to act but it does equip you to act so that if you care about those on the other side of the sign, which is an if, but if you do, you could even talk to the restaurant owner who is after all in sight with you. And you could say, restaurant owner, there are hungry people outside. Why don't you open the door? Let them come in. You'll make more money. And oh, the conversations we could have. Mm -hmm. Or maybe what you'll do is 
pass food through the window, or maybe you'll try to tear down that sign or break through the door, but at least what you won't be doing is sitting back saying, huh, wonder why those people don't just come on in and sit down and eat, because you'll understand something about the two-sided nature of that sign. So I tell that story to say that racism is structuring two-sided or multi-sided signs in our society, that racism does exist, even though your whole life may have screamed open to you, and to invite all of us to ask the question, which is a very important question now, given our current state of being, you know, centuries into the establishment of this country. How can people who are born inside the restaurant know something about the two-sided nature of that sign? I once sparked a three-hour conversation with that simple question. So I actually encourage those of you who are listening to this, to this uh, video, take that question with you. Share this story with others and start that conversation because there are many, many ways. And maybe, Joe, maybe we'll talk about that now. But I'm going to take a breath right now. That was the first of three parts I wanted to answer your question with. But do you have anything that you want to lift up right now uh, I guess or ask me? Gosh, so many. But for people who say, I'm not racist, I voted for Obama, or I'm not racist, I dated someone black in college, or, or I'm not racist, I don't see color. How do you address that? Because that's just like, I, it's, a hard, it's always a hard one, and I'm getting much right. better knowing, being equipped, but what do you say to that? Well, it starts out with how I understand racism. So when I define racism, I'm going to tell you like a sentence definition, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to hit each part. But the most important part to answer your question is that racism is a system. Okay, mm -hmm. so racism is not an individual character flaw. It's not a personal moral failing. It's not even a psychiatric illness as some people have suggested. It's a system of power. And there are people who act in that system. And I talk about three levels of racism. We may or may not get to that. But here's my definition of racism. Racism is a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So I've said my sentence. Let me go back and pick up the, the high points. The first is that racism is a system. And if I'm sitting on an airplane, you know, it used to. It's been a long time now. <laughs> Right. But, you know, I used to sit to people. So, you know, sometimes they'll talk to you. Sometimes they won't. You know, sometimes they size you up and figure like, oh, there's nothing you have in common. And then they'll put on their headphones or whatever. But sometimes we have conversations. And in those times, um, people will ask, you know, what do you do? And, you know, so I let them tell me first what they do. And then I say, well, you know, I'm a family physician, epidemiologist, and my work is on naming, measuring, and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the society. My one sentence intro. And they'll look at me. And they'll say, well, how do, you, how do you get along calling people racist? Now, did you hear anything in that intro right. that said that I went around calling people racist? The most important thing that people do not get in this country is that racism is a system. And the, most, the, the thing that puts people off from talking about this system is they misinterpret it as a personal indictment. So to talk about this system is not to talk about a personal indictment. In fact, I'm going to just share another image before I come back to the definition. I, my understanding of racism is, is pretty much like this. It's like racism is a cement factory spewing cement dust into the air. And if you're around this factory any kind of little bit of time, you're going to have cement dust in your lungs, right? And the job for us is not to 
point fingers necessarily or to deny you have dust in your lungs or to compare how much dust you have in your lungs versus dust other people have in their lungs. Really what we need to understand is that there is a, there's a, a cement factory spewing cement dust. The first job is to recognize that, that that is the problem and try to get an individual gas, gas mask. So at least you can become, you're doing something active now. You're becoming actively anti-racist, at least in that tiny little way at an individual level. Mm -hmm. But then you don't just parade around, oh, you know, I've got my gas mask, I'm anti-racist. What you need to do is let other people know about the existence of the factory, help other people get their gas mask on. And then when there are enough of you, your job is to go into the factory and shut it down. So this is the job. And I am never, as I describe the existence of a cement factory, I am not blaming people for how much cement dust they have in their lungs because this is where they grew up, because this is the system that we have. We all have cement dust in our lungs. It affects different ones of us differently. Mine, you know, mine is internalized racism. When I talk about three levels of racism, mine is mostly um, diminishing my own value or the value of people who have been uh, racialized into my group, right? Um, and other people, the cement dust actually leads them to have a, some sense of entitlement or, or whatever, you know, so it affects different, or a sense of anger or a sense of entitlement thwarted or all different kinds of things happening with the cement dust. But it, it's the primary problem. We will never, if we just try to address those things, we need to address all of it at the same time. But if we think that racism is a problem of individuals without understanding that there's a system that continues to pollute us and our environment and continues to distort our, our thinking and our relationships with one another, then we're gonna miss the point. And 400 years later, we're still gonna be divided Mm -hmm. And some people unfairly advantaged and some people unfairly disadvantaged and the like. So let me go back to the definition now. Um, unless you want to ask me something now, but I, I would like to finish the definition. <laughs> I know that I can talk, 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 talk. I love, no, I'm, I'm glad that you're saying this. I'm just absorbed in every word that you're saying. So I'm like, oh, right, yes, the definition, let's do that. So yeah, please. So, so I start out with acknowledging it's a system and I gave you another way of understanding why that's an important thing to understand. And it's a system of doing two things. It's a system of structuring opportunity and a system of assigning value. And I will come back to those two things because they're distinct. And sometimes I think that even when we understand the opportunity structuring that racism does, we do not understand how it also has to operate in the realm of differential valuation. Well, I mean, that's the original sin when people were, were kidnapped and brought across the Atlantic and, you know, tremendous loss of life in the Middle Passage in terms of Africans brought to this country and we were less than human or, you know, people, you know, coming to this land and then, then killing or, you know, the genocide of, of Native Americans and the like, you know, so it's a less than human thing that's, that's basic in there, but I don't think people understand that we need to target that too. But anyway, so system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on what? based on so-called race, but that so-called race is not biology, right? It is the social interpretation of how one looks in a race conscious society. So if you're looking at my image right now and you have any understanding of the US, you know that here in the US, I'm clearly black. But in some parts of Brazil, I have experienced being just as clearly white. In South Africa, I've experienced being just as clearly colored. So here I am, same physical appearance, but the social interpretation of my appearance in those three settings that I just articulated 
would put me into three different racial groups. And furthermore, if I were to stay in any of those settings long enough, then my health outcome would probably become that of the group to which I've been assigned, even though I'd have the same genes in all of those places. Really, so really quickly, explain. Mm -hmm. So colored in South Africa is an actual racial designation there. Do you, do you want to explain a little bit about that? Because that might be a little confusing to people who might not know. Okay, so yes, yeah, so, the, so there's um, African or black, then there's colored, and then there's Indian, and then there's uh, Afrikaans or, or, or whites are kind of the main four groups. And um, even though the, the, the white or the Afrikaans people were only 10% of the population, still probably about that. In South Africa, they, they controlled the country, they oppressed the country and controlled it through, through the, um, the race laws and, and segregating people into um, the different, oh, I can't, I can't remember now the, the names of the different like homelands and stuff like that. But well, yeah. So colored is not another word for black the way it used to be in our society. It's a whole separate designation from black for anyone who's not. And, and it's interesting that in this society where 10% of the people were European, okay, or white, that's when it pays if you have a, another group of people who are the other who are being oppressed mm -hmm. to actually stratify them into groups. Sure. Because then people who are closer to white in terms of their privilege will love that stratification and it somewhat protects the white minority, right? If, if there were, if everybody felt a, a strong common cause and it was 10%, 90% and the 90% were being oppressed, um, that would be a harder system to maintain than if you have, you know, 80% oppressed and then you have a 5% that's maybe colored and then another, you know, 15%, no, I guess another 5%. So maybe it's more than, you know, maybe I don't have the numbers, but you have these, these layers. In this country, what we have is the one drop rule, which is still operating. So if you have any discernible African ancestry, we're all African ancestored, of course, the original people came from African, but any discernible black African ancestry in this country, then you are still black, that used to be the law in many states. I don't know if it's still, you know, on, on the books in terms of, you know, mulattoes, which is half black, half white, and then quadroons and octoroons. And so there was very fine distinctions. I don't know if in Louisiana, for example, that's still on the books or in any other places. But anyway, so yes, colored is a separate category, racial category, which with different attendant benefits. So, so, so in that country, in South Africa, just as in the US, and just as in other places. So people say, well, in Puerto, Puerto Rico, you know, we don't really, there's no racism. Or I've been told in Venezuela, there's no racism. And then I go and I'm looking at the distribution of wealth and status and power, and there's a big color you know, differentiation. It, the, the names change, the rules, the sorting rules change, mm -hmm. and even how opportunity is structured and values assigned, it, it appertains differently to different groups. But there are many, many race conscious societies. And so that's what I'm saying that this thing race, this thing race is something that operates in many different race conscious societies, but in each one, there are different sorting rules and different uh, benefit rules and, and different names and, and all of that. So in our country and in all of these race conscious countries, we have something called race. And in different places, that might put me in different places. In fact, for everybody listening to this, even those of you who are living as white, I tell you that there is some other place on this earth where your so-called race would be different from how you're experiencing it today. 
you might go to a place where, where white is not a racial category, and then you'd find yourself in some other, you know, in some other grouping. So, so this thing that we think of as so important and deterministic, actually, and some people think it's quite biologically based in this country is not. All it is is the social interpretation of how one looks in a race conscious society according to the rules and sorting and categories and names of that society. But, and then racism is the system that operates on that so-called race to structure opportunity and assign value. And racism has three impacts. The first is that it unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities. And when we do think or talk about racism at all in this country, that's where we go. That's, we understand that. But it shouldn't take us long to recognize that every unfair disadvantage has its reciprocal unfair advantage. So that racism is also unfairly advantaging other individuals and communities. That's the whole issue of unearned white privilege that we hardly ever talk about in this country. And that's because it makes some people, especially some white people, uncomfortable. And I, as Jill said, you know, I, I, I've talked all around the country, all around the world. And so I'm often speaking to audiences where I acknowledge that my saying unearned white privilege might have made some people that I'm talking to uncomfortable. And I used to be, you know, of the stance, well, okay, well, you know, I know I may, may have made some of you uncomfortable. If you feel uncomfortable, shake it off, you know, stay with me. I'll tell you more stories, you know, we'll get through this. But now I actually say, if you feel uncomfortable, I want you to lean in because yeah. the edge of our comfort for all of us is our growing edge. And so if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, you have to examine that and lean in and want to know more and want to stay in that place and to explore and grow from that place. But then acknowledging that this system is both unfairly disadvantaging some and unfairly advantaging others, the third impact of racism is the one that I really feel the, an urgency to lift up now, especially in these days. And that's how racism is sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So I could give you lots of examples. Uh, I'm just gonna say when we don't invest in the full excellent public education of all of our kids, because the blinders of racism have made us think there's no genius in the barrios or the ghettos or on the reservations. We can get along very well, thank you, without those kids. Of course, there's genius in all of our communities. And if we were to only vigorously invest in excellent education for all of that genius, we could be doing so much better as a nation or as a world. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the same way these, these blinders make us not concerned, in fact, make us as a nation complacent with the wholesale warehousing disproportionately of so many black and brown men and women in our prison system as if that didn't lock us away from human potential. And, you know, we don't understand all the genius that is caught up in this system, that if there had only been some other way could be contributing quite productively to our society. You know, there's, I think that that point is a point that we need more media stories about, more data collection about, and more conversations in our, around our dinner tables about how racism is sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources, because we need more people feeling a sense of urgency to dismantle this system and to put in its place a system in which all people can know and develop to their full potentials. Jill, before I, I, I just want to say one more thing on this. Yeah. When I, so, you know, so often when I do talks, I have slides behind me, you know, so I have these bullet points. Oh, I shouldn't say bullet points. I, 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 I'm, trying to be away from our militaristic and things. So these, oh. yes, yes. So I, 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 I haven't said words like that for months since I recognized that. But anyway, I 
yes, for those points. But um, once, so I used to work at the CDC for 14 and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I left the CDC um, because I moved to a different part where they were not, they were far from supportive of my work on race and racism. It, indeed, they thought that nobody at CDC should be working on issues of racism. But certainly if that was gonna happen at CDC, it shouldn't happen in this new part in which I found myself. And so they were actively trying to suppress my work. And, and the associate director for science who had to clear my presentations told me that I had to take that second point of the three points that I talked about, the unfair disadvantage, the unfair advantage, and sapping the strength. That second one about how racism unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, I had to take that off of my slides. Yeah. And, and I struggled and we were you know, back and forth. And then the short-term compromise was if I didn't characterize either the advantage or disadvantage as unfair, if I took the words unfairly off, then, I, then we might be okay. But that struggle, which was finally resolved when Dr. David Satcher rescued me <laughs> from CDC and I went on loan from CDC for a year to the Morehouse School of Medicine, and then I cut my CDC tie. But that struggle was very informative to me because until then, I did not recognize with the force that I now recognize, that there are many people in this country who think there are two states of being, that there's disadvantaged and normal. Mm. And the reason that people think that there's disadvantaged and normal is that we as a nation are ahistorical and people do not understand that their so-called normal is built up on a whole mountain of unfair advantage. So that's why, so that's how we got into this in the first place. Um, but anyway, so that's my short answer to that. And then I'm going to breathe for a minute. Let me ask you, let you ask me another question. But then um, I do want to talk practically about what it might look like if you are living with white skin privilege in this country, how you might understand using that privilege. But I'm going to just pause for a minute. And yeah, absolutely. So I just, that, that quote, the edge of our comfort is our growing edge. I, I just love that so much. That's, that, that speaks to me a lot because the work that I do, my approach to helping people understand is helping them recognize those feelings and then using like mind body techniques because I'm a meditation and tapping expert. So I'm all about mind body because it's hard for people to just like have that discomfort and know what to do with it. So I, my approach is to give people techniques to understand that like, you are not alone. This does not mean mm -hmm. you're a bad person. Mm. This is a cool thing. Like this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And people ask me like, why are you, why do you care about this? Because it's enlightening, you know, it's, it's a consciousness expanding and it's the, it's the reality of the world. So it's painful, but that's shying away from that. Isn't really an option for me. And so my whole approach is to help people lean into that edge of their comfort so that they can grow. So I love that you, you speak to that because just because people shut down, you know, I start to talk and I'm sure other people, when they start to talk about race, like it's oh, not, not me. I don't do that. Yeah. I don't want to hear about it. I'm struggling on my own enough. I don't need to worry about other people's struggle. How can, you know, and so right. I just really love that. And I think you're making me um, think about what are people missing when they don't, acknowledge that there's another whole world on the other side of that sign. It's not just the sign, it's the sign, it's the door, it's the lock, but that we actually do live in quite segregated 
world in this country mm -hmm. and um the loss the loss i mean so it's not even in a way it's the selfish thing would be if you understand something about that yes you can help other people or but it's a loss to you too not to know those other people it's a loss to you too not to know the the truth about your society and to know that there are many other ways of living it's a loss for people to not understand that just across town there are people who are just as kind funny generous hardworking, smart as they are who are living in very different circumstances to understand the common humanity in the different circumstances because then when we understand our common humanity then we then we can connect on a resource level we can connect on a story level understanding friendship we can under we can connect i mean it just opens up a whole new world yeah of of knowledge and experience and friendship and love and i know that many people feel that their worlds are big enough thank you you know yeah and especially if they feel that their worlds are safe like like it's a safety thing i don't even want to have to think about how things might be on the other side of town um but here's where the COVID 19 pandemic is really coming in so so right now we have lots of evidence that people of color start out with statistics about african americans or black people uh being uh, more likely to be infected and then uh, again more likely even over their infection prevalence more likely to die from COVID-19 than other populations and now we know that's also true when you're looking at populations with uh you know high latinx populations or you're looking at uh american indian communities you know in indian country so i have a lot of thought about that but, but we know that and just as we started learning that as a nation is when they started being these demonstrations to reopen America and liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia. And I think that those people who are calling for that think that the, the walls that divide us, the, the, the structured inequity that has been revealed by this virus to which we're all susceptible as human beings but the structured inequity is like who's more exposed who's less protected who's been made sicker by by years of living in disinvested and poisoned communities that so that's where it's going first but these walls are not so thick that the virus is not going to get to you so it's even a matter of self-interest really to understand that you cannot wall yourself away mm -hmm. from other people especially when you have an infectious disease and i think that people think that some folks are either a different species or that you know that they, that we have segregated them so completely thank you that we don't have to worry about it when you think about how the infection when introduced into um closed environments is running rampant like in prisons or in nursing homes or in you know meat packing plants or in warehouses that is actually partially what we're seeing when we're seeing it in black and brown communities because we also have been kind of locked away in some kind of way but not so completely because we also are overrepresenting the people who are driving the buses or the subways or who are delivering the food or who are stocking the grocery shelves or who are you know doing the sanitation or all of these other essential roles so that's my riff on like really you want to reopen because you think that that is going to disproportionately affect other people and it's not going to come to you. We might be the canaries in the mine, but the mine is full of virus. Right, right. <laughs> you know. I was interviewing a psychologist yesterday and she, you and I talked about this before. This, she talked about this concept of othering, which I had not heard before. And it's this concept of like, 
being able to assign blame to other people for things that bad things that happen to them, which makes you feel more safe in your own little bubble. It like decreases your stress and anxiety because I can feel better that, oh, well, I'm not doing those things. I'm not doing those things. Therefore, I'm better. You know, that guy got lung cancer because he's a smoker. Therefore, I'm, you know, oh, that person is like that because they are the color of their skin or whatever. And so what her and I were talking about, which is, is that empathy is the antidote to all of that stress and to all of that othering reach just like what you were saying like reaching out and having conversations with people and realizing your common humanity um in my meditation tradition we call it the ego voice which is not my just that's a big known thing but like we talk about it a lot it's that it's that like inherent thing that tries to protect you and it wants to keep you separate mm. from everything in the whole world mm. it's not it wasn't invented on race it was just a thing but like whatever it can do to keep you separate it keeps the ego in a job so so mm. um, we can use anything we can use covid we can use race we can do whatever and the way to go and that's what keeps you small and so and and staying on the edge of your comfort like you're saying that's the way to get out of that ego mindset because the ego wants you to stay still. The ego wants you to stay confined and in the status quo, but the status quo is actually the least safe place you can stay and you always have to be innovating and growing. So I love how this is kind of all tying in. Um, I just want to add to, add to that um, because sometimes I talk about the importance of us being interested in the stories of others mm -hmm. first then believing the stories of others and then joining in the stories of others. So that's how I guess you grow out of your, your ego protection. And I hadn't thought about it in, in relation to the ego, but yeah. That's really, yeah. So the interest, yeah. Like it's like, Oh, isn't that quaint, but actually like getting in there and empathizing and having conversations and um, realizing that. And that being it, it, so even if you go inside for those who are inside the restaurant, so I'm still going to go back to that same image for those who are inside the restaurant, who might hear a little something from people outside the restaurant, who might hear Black Lives Matter chants outside the restaurant and inside the reaction is, well, why are they saying Black Lives Matter? Don't they know that all lives matter? Well, to actually be interested in why they're saying that, to go out and find out and then to believe the stories, believe the difference experience. In fact, maybe turn around and say, oh, the sign does say closed, you know, but you have to kind of jump out of your comfort zone, even to, even to, to, to hear what is being said and then to join in the stories of others. So, so the work of us is not to individualize. The work of us, as you say, is, to, to, is empathy, it's connection, it's collective action. And so this is making me want to just maybe run through at least the first three of what I describe as seven barriers to achieving health equity. Is, it, yes. is that all right for me to do yeah, that? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Yes. Um, because, so I used to have three. I used to have three barriers to achieving health equity, and I've already mentioned them, but I'm gonna say them again mm -hmm. and slowly. And then I, they've expanded to seven, but I've come to recognize that these things that I were calling, I was calling them social or cultural barriers to achieving health equity. Actually, these are the values targets in our country that if we want to be anti-racist, these are the targets we'll need to address. We know the structure targets have to do with uh, housing segregation and educational segregation and environmental racism and uh, you know the prison the school to prison pipeline and over policing and so we know a lot about the structural things the targets that we need to dismantle these I was going to actually ask you about that before because when we say the system a lot of people don't understand what you mean and I remember when I first heard about the prison stuff my brain just shut down I was just like too much for me to handle can't handle it but like 
maybe if you can briefly talk about it, I mean, the, the press, edu you know, talk about, you could give specific examples in a couple ways of, of how the system actually. In fact, yeah. right. in fact, I have a question that I like people to use. Um, I don't think we've ever discussed this before, but there's a, um, the question, how is racism operating here? Or how is sexism operating here? Or how is, you know, heterosexism operating here? Or how is, you know, all of these isms, all of these systems of structured inequity, I'm going to give you a way to brainstorm le possible levers for intervention by taking this question, how is racism operating here? And it's a legitimate question because racism, sexism, all these other things are not clouds or miasmas we can't get a handle on. They are systems with identifiable and addressable mechanisms. Those mechanisms are in our dis elements of decision-making. Those mechanisms are in our structures, policies, practices, norms, and values, which are different elements of decision-making where structures are the who, what, when, and where of decision-making, especially who's at the table and who's not, what's on the agenda and what's not. And so, so I mean, even with, well, I, let me go through all of them and then, and then apply that. So first thing I need to say is anytime that you as a listener find yourself at a decision-making table, I am going to charge you henceforth to take a look around and say, who is not at this table who has an interest in this proceeding? And then your job is not just to represent their interests, which might be a short-term thing that you need to do, but your job is to create space at the table, to bring them to the table. And then so if structures are who, what, when, and where of decision-making, who's at the table, who's not, what's on the agenda, what's not. Policies are the written how of decision-making. Practices and norms are the unwritten how of decision-making, and values are the why. So this is still very theoretical. You're like, how is this going to help me understand how racism is operating in terms of you know, police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women. Well, you know, I've, I've done just a quick thought experiment on that or the thought experiment and how is racism operating in terms of the involvement of people of color in clinical trials or how is racism operating in the terms of the underrepresentation of black and black men and women in, in the medical field or whatever. So I'm telling you, you can take this question with you anywhere and I'm going to give you the example of answering it with regard to police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women. Great. You can take this question, and, and if I'm ever called to do a talk anywhere, the day before, I'm just going through these, you know, who, what, when, where, how, and why of decision-making, talking about structures, policies, practices, norms, and values, and I have five slides that I can share with people about what they can do, the levers that they can act on with regard to that thing. So with regard to police killings of uh, unarmed black and brown men and women, the structural piece might be the presence or absence of a civilian review board, right? So is, is there some board that is monitoring police actions and has some kind of power to, to request investigations or not? So that, that would be a structural thing that is either in place or not that you could work on. In terms of policies, um, I would say the, the policy of requiring uh, a grand jury to bring an indictment against a police officer if there's a death as opposed to the police officer had a gun, shot the gun into that person, that person died, and, and therefore you, you can have murder charges. You know, it, it doesn't mean they're guilty, but you can bring charges. So that, that policy in many places, well, that might be something that you need to intervene on. In terms of practices, the over-policing of communities of color, which bring police and people of color into more accidental interaction. 
in terms of norms, the, the blue code of silence, the, the norm in police departments that if you are a police officer and you see somebody do something bad, one of your fellow officers, you don't say anything. The blue code of silence yeah. might be something that we could intervene on. And in terms of values, the widely held perception that black men especially are inherently dangerous so that if you're a police officer and you say, well, I felt afraid that that's already a good enough excuse. Right. That somehow makes it okay. That sometimes somehow makes it okay. So each of these things would be things that we could say we either want to put in place or we need to address or we want to take out of place. But it just gives just one thing at each of those levels gives you a possible starting place for levers for intervention. Right. And I think that we should never one person or one group can focus on one thing, but we always have to be organizing and strategizing with others because if we take one thing and deal with that, the system's so fancy, it'll just reconfigure itself and put something else in its place. So it has to be in all hands on deck. But this is, um, it's a useful question. So anyway. Great, thank you, thank you. I just, cause people, I want people to like, be able to like sink their teeth into this is like to believe it. To when, what, what the system is. Your brilliance. Like I want people to be like, oh, I get it now, you know? So thank you very much. And, so, and the housing segregation, which mm -hmm. there's an excellent book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein that talks about even after World War II, how the federal government was quite active in, in establishing segregated neighborhoods by race and, and which persist. And, you know, mostly, you know, structural racism or institutionalized racism it's mostly, you know, inaction in the face of need. <laughs> it's mostly because of historical injustices that are now self-perpetuating through contemporary structural factors. But they, most often it doesn't require an identifiable perpetrator, right? And it's my perception that the most profound impacts of racism never require bias or discrimination because they've already been set in place. Mm. But anyway, so, I, so, the, so the most profound mechanism is that people of color are segregated into neighborhoods which are then disinvested, where the housing quality is poor or allowed to deteriorate and might be crowded. This has a lot to do with the spread of COVID-19 in these communities. And then when you add on that, that in many places across this nation, most still, that public schools are funded based on local property taxes, then you now have schools in poor neighborhoods which are poorly funded, which often results in poor educational outcomes and another whole generation lost. So then you have housing segregation leading to educational segregation, which then leads to employment or occupational segregation, which is now why you see black folks and brown folks overrepresented on the front lines of people who weren't recognized to be essential but are serving essential roles, aren't given the protective, personal protective equipment they need in those essential roles. But this is part of the explanation of why we're getting more infected, right? You have the segregation of of um, factories and uh, what do you call it? Like when you bury the trash and uh, you know bus transfer, sta transfer stations and like polluting industries. There's even a term for neighborhoods that are around that are around polluting industries called sacrifice zones. And so many of our mm -hmm. black and brown and American Indian nation areas are actually officially termed sacrifice zones. When I heard that, I was like, no, say it is not so. Yeah, that's... But, but anyway, so, so the most profound way that our life experiences, our life opportunities 
are segregated is based on housing segregation. So that's going to have to be one of the first things that we address, right? Uh, but anyway, so where was I going? I the barriers. We were on the barriers. Oh, barriers. Okay. About the systemic part. So I think you were on the first. Yeah. Thank you. I hope that was useful to us. It was so helpful. Yeah, it was great. It was perfect. I like. I love the systematic way to doing it and just asking like, how is racism operating here with those five? It's just right. like and recognizing that they're about power. Power is decision making. Mm -hmm. You know, the power to to control something, the power to act. You know, the control of resources, power to decide, power to act, and control of resources are what, in my mind, are the elements of self determination. But that's that's power right there. So. I'm just going to quickly go through the first three and then add the fourth. So there's seven now barriers to achieving health equity. The first I've said already, the narrow focus on the individual, which makes systems and structures either invisible or irrelevant. They also make us have a very narrow sense of self-interest, right? It may not even extend to our cousins or our aunts or uncles. It makes us have a very constrained sense of our efficacy because we're thinking, what can I do, not what can we do? We have a limited sense of collective efficacy. But as I say, the most profound impact of this narrow focus on the individual is that it makes systems and structures invisible or seemingly irrelevant. The second of my seven barriers to achieving health equity are that we were ahistorical. I mentioned that before, but we act as if the present were disconnected from the past and as if the current distribution of advantage and disadvantage were just a happenstance. And when you're ahistorical, then you might say, well, when I was born, things were this way, must have always been this way, must always going to be this way. And we don't even understand the history of change or the history of how systems have been put in place. So it makes systems and structures seem like they can't be changed, like they're immutable. When in, fact, when in fact, when in fact they are, <laughs> when in fact that we can change things. I spoke with the most incredible woman yesterday. She's a first year Harvard med student. You may have heard of her, Lash Nolan. And she, I interviewed her and she was talking about like growing up in Compton, like you just don't even realize that there's a context that put people there. And you start to think that that's just what life is and that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. When there's not a historical context. So that really like brought it to light for me. Um, people don't realize the hundred right. of years of history that has created this moment today. That's right. And, and we're not even thought to ask about history. And then the histories that we're taught in our public schools uh, and probably private schools in many areas are very constrained and, and one-sided. So mm -hmm. anyway, the third of the three barriers is our endorsement of the myth of meritocracy, the story that goes like this. If you work hard, you'll make it. Uh, and I give you that most people who have made it have worked hard, although not everybody who's made it has worked hard. And we have very prominent examples of that right now in our politics. But even as I acknowledge that most people who have made it have worked hard, there are many, 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 many other people working just as hard or harder who will never make it because of an uneven playing field, which has been created, structured, and maintained by racism, sexism, all these other systems of structured inequity. So when we have this myth of meritocracy, that this is a land of equal opportunity, uh, whatever, that is actually denying these systems of structured inequity and instead blaming people for this situation that must be lazy or stupid, you know, or whatever. And so when we deny racism, we are actually complicit with condoning this myth of meritocracy, right? When we say there is no uneven playing field, then we're endorsing that myth. And you can deny racism in any number of ways, but 
the two most common ways are to say, I don't think racism exists anymore because we had Barack Obama or I, I had a, you know, I had a white, I mean, well, for me, or, you know, <laughs> you know, a black boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, right? Or another way of denying racism is to never say the word racism. Mm. To say the words race or implicit bias or discrimination or disparities, lots of important things that we need to talk about. I'm not saying don't talk about those things. But if we talk about all of those things without ever saying the word racism in the context of widespread denial, we are complicit with that denial. And so actually, when I was president of the American Public Health Association, I launched our association and as many other people as would come with us on a national campaign against racism with three tasks. The first was to name racism, to say the whole word. Racism, you can get the ism out of your mouth. <laughs> racism, right? The second is to ask this question, how is racism operating here? And then the third is to organize and strategize to act. I'll quickly, so these first three things are, for, for about two or three years, those were the only barriers that I had articulated. And I'm understanding now they were the most important to think about because those are the ones that allow people to slip back into what I'm describing now as the somnolence of racism denial. Ooh. And even though right now in COVID-19, we might be a little more willing to acknowledge their structural barriers by race, you know, uh, we might fall back into that somnolence of racism denial like we did after Hurricane Katrina, like we did after the poisoning of the Flint water supply. And so actually these three things, the narrow focus on the individual, the ahistorical and the myth of meritocracy allow this nation to go there. The other four very quickly are our myth of a zero sum game. And I can go more deeply if you want me into those. A limited future orientation a myth of American exceptionalism. And finally, the base one is white supremacist ideology. The notion that there exists in humanity a hierarchy of value and the further insult to wrong myth that white people would be at the top of that would be the ideal or the norm, which gives people who are living as white a sense of entitlement. It gives them a fear at the browning of America, right? And it, it, it results in dehumanizing other people, that othering that you were talking about on a racial basis. So those are my seven, uh, now what I'm understanding is values targets in our anti-racism work. There's so, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Can you say again what the fourth one was? The myth of a zero sum game. Can you talk more about that? Cause I don't inherently understand. Understand that. what I mean there. So the myth that um, if you gain, I lose. Okay. The myth that uh, the, the thing that puts us not in a cooperative stance with regard to one another, but in a competitive stance. And the way I like to illustrate that is it's, it's, a, it's the story you would tell yourself if you were having a potluck dinner and you thought that somebody was going to come and eat some of the food but not bring anything, right? Like, so, so you think, oh, we can't let these people come to this dinner because they will eat all of our food without recognizing they're bringing cakes and pies and, 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 and roast and all kinds of stuff to the dinner. And, and people can have this wrong idea because they do not value those people that they would consider as interlopers at their dinner, right? So they, they think that these people have no value. So why am I going to let them get part of the game? They don't understand that they increase the size of the whole pie. Okay. Yeah. That's everything you're saying is so resonates so much, which is obviously why you're such a great speaker and educator. Um, 
so what can people do? I think if there's anything else you wanted to explain about those seven barriers, um, I mean, we could spend an hour talking about each of them, a day talking about each of them probably. What can, what can people do to use their privilege for good? What can people do to um, lean into that edge of discomfort? Um, it's going to be to, so. So the first thing is to, um, I guess, just be aware. The question isn't even is racism operating here in everyday life, but how is racism oh. operating here? So, I want to tell you. I want to remind people of a story that now it may be four years ago or five years ago, um, in McKinney, Texas. So it's a city outside of Dallas. I understand there was. Um, there was a, a group of young teens, just one of them was just turning 13, and they wanted to celebrate their birthday at a pool in one of their neighborhoods, right? And we learned about this story because people at the pool who were white, and this was, you know, a group, a mixed group of people, objected to those kids being there and they called the police. And what we saw, I don't know if you remember this, but what we saw was uh, an image in social media of a police officer dragging this young black woman by her hair and then sitting on her. And we saw the young black boys with their hands behind their backs sitting on the curb. And for people who do remember that image, I ask you, how did we come to know that that thing happened? And people were like, well, social media, right? But I'm, I, I want you to go deeper. Like, how did we know? And I got the answer to that question the day after the, uh, the assault, when a young white boy was on TV being interviewed and he said, it was almost as if I were invisible to the police. He was a member of the friend group that was at the party. Mm. He saw what was happening to his friends and he could have, recognizing that he was almost invisible to the police, run home for safety. But instead, recognizing his white skin privilege in that situation, he took out his cell phone and he documented what was happening to did his you friends. Did you post that on Twitter recently, that video of the girl? Is I did song? not. I did not. You had something recently of a girl being mistreated by a, a police officer. And I oh, yes. Oh, that was something else. Oh, my God. That's recent. Okay. Oh, I, I don't even know what the situation of that one was yet. But oh. no, this was years ago. This was years ago. Okay. This was different where he actually sat on her. This little girl was, I mean, the one that was just up there. I mean, oh, my God. She's little, little, little. Okay. The other one was at least a teenager. Okay. Oh, so these are really, okay. Oh, yeah, but it happens a lot. I'm sadly unaware of this event, and I can pretend that it's because I lived in China and India four years ago, and I can pretend that, but I'm sure it's just because I am you know, was in my bubble of ignorance back then. So, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, so, so that's an example. So, an example is to recognize that you are invisible and some, you're privileged to be raceless if you're living as white in some situations, you're privileged with the benefit of the doubt, you're privileged with uh, getting earlier treatment. So you might actually be in line behind somebody, but a clerk will come and invite you to, to get service first, in which case you should say, oh no, so-and-so was in front of me. So it's for you to, to, to act is to first of all, have a sensitivity to what's going on. Um, I actually, it's just a little, little life experience, but I just want to share it with you. So I was at a pharmacy and I, it turns out I had just placed an order, but I was still there waiting for something. A white woman and her maybe eight-year-old boy walked up and without her asking me if I had been helped, 
immediately sort of inserts herself in front and, and does her order and then goes off to the side. And I was like, she didn't even ask me if I had been helped yet. So I went over to her and I said, you know, you should have asked me whether I had already been served before you barged in front of me with the pharmacist. And she said, oh, I didn't even see you. And here I am, I'm not invisible. I am as big as day. And so you might ask, well, why did I? And like that justifies it somehow that she didn't see you. That's that she didn't see me. But then you might ask me, well, why, you know, since I knew that I had been taken care of, why did I even go and ask her about that? But I asked her about that because she needed to know that she did that. Well, if I, you know, if a white person witnessed that, I would ask you guys, if you witnessed that, that you also go to her. Yeah and say something. So in other words, it's not even just my job, I was the one affronted, but what I'm saying is if you uh, understand your position of privilege, you also need to understand that you can make your eyes, you can take some blinders off of your eyes mm-hmm. and you can recognize that there are many, many opportunities for you to speak up and you're speaking up to other people who are living as white might be much more effective than me telling all the stories in the world or me asking all the questions of a person in the world. Yeah, which is on its own devastating, but it's also kind of how the world works. So doing what you can to, um, that's so powerful. That's that, that is still like sticking with me right now. Um, Is there anything else? I mean, I feel like there's so, we talked about some action items um, how do we keep this from going away, this awareness, this increased awareness from going away after COVID ah. day settles down? So how do, and this, this, this woman who I spoke with yesterday, um, this Nash, Lash Nolan, she said, I don't want this to become like the last slide at the end of the, the lecture on COVID where there's one tiny little slide about, about uh, racial disparities in COVID. I don't want to become relegated to that. So how do we make sure that this isn't something that just goes away when we don't have to think about it anymore when people of privilege don't have to think about it <laughs> right <laughs> that's what I meant, right? That's what, you know I understand I understand but I was like oh because we're always thinking about it <laughs> yes um so I think that it's time for us to recognize that racism is sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources so even uh even if you recognize that this system is privileging you in some ways if you can identify with being part of a bigger whole and recognize that it's sapping the strength of the whole society, then you will find that, that you're not even just an ally in a struggle, that this is your struggle, right? And I don't even like the term ally. I think it's a little bit loose, although people use it in a very well-meaning way. But I think that allies, maybe they feel like, oh, I have to take a vacation for a few weeks. So I, you know, you know, I hope the struggle goes well, I'll check you in a few weeks, <laughs> as opposed to taking the struggle with them on vacation type of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I like the, the phrase partner, but I think what we have to all recognize is that it is not okay that when we had this virus that, to which everybody was susceptible, and it, if we lived in a society in which opportunity were equally distributed, and in which exposure to risk were equally distributed, there would have been no way we could slice and dice the population and find differences in infection rates or mortality rates, right? But we did find these huge 
differences in infection rates and mortality rates because opportunity is not equally distributed and, and exposure to risk is not equally distributed and is differentially distributed by race. Now that we have this really plain, I mean, we could have seen it before in terms of, like I say, any health disparity, any educational disparity, any occupational disparity or wealth disparity or income disparity. Like we have had so many signs of inequity by race in this country, right? But now that, that it's getting through a little bit clearer because this was a new virus, right? And still we see it. So we can't normalize it or ignore it or explain it away by this, that, and the other, although some people are trying, but, but we can't. So now that we have this aha, I think that we must be very deliberate in not letting go of an anti-racist agenda, right? I think that we have to continue to name racism, identify how is racism operating here and organize and strategize to act. I actually have the three parts of, a, of an anti-racist policy agenda that are my three parts. I mean, I mean, each of us could throw in some things and we could have a very robust policy agenda, but mine start with reparations to descendants of Africans enslaved in the US. D-A-E-U-S is an ethnic group that my colleague, Vernelia Randall, an attorney in Ohio, has suggested descendants of Africans enslaved in the United States um, as, a, as an ethnic group. Well, reparations to us, which would have a lot of, so we could see what that would look like, but in education and in community investment and all of that. First, decarceration or abolition of incarceration, which actually Angela Davis was calling for decades ago and still is calling for, she is alive and well, and still uh, is acting on decarceration. But we as a nation are incarcerating a much larger proportion of any of our of our population than any other nation, especially any other developed nation on this earth. And black and brown people are much overrepresented in that incarcerated population. And we're incarcerating our young people, our juveniles and the like, right? So decarceration is the second. And the third is massive investment in our communities, especially those that have been disinvested and investment that around families and children especially because the children and the planet are the two parts of the future that we can touch today and we would know we were successful with that investment when the phrase disadvantaged child made no sense mm -hmm. because there was no child born into disadvantage that is how we would know that we were successful and recognizing that just because someone else's child is no longer disadvantaged doesn't mean your child is going to be less advantage we can all have we should we all that's right that's that zero-sum game thing yeah that that by by making sure that disadvantaged child has no meaning is not going to disadvantage your child because disadvantaged child will have no meaning yeah so there's there's a lot to a lot to think about um this has been incredible i'm so 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 grateful we could keep talking forever, but you have to like go with your life. <laughs> and uh, people probably can't watch. We, I think we've been talking over an hour. So, oh. um, so this is amazing. Dr. Kamara Jones, I'm, I'm just blown away uh, at, at, at your, your insight and your, your joy and the, the energy that you bring to this, this conversation and, and, and the work that you do. Um, it's very, it's very magnetic and inspiring, and I'm, I'm so glad uh, that we had a chance to talk today. 
how can people find you, follow you, work with you, hire you to speak? What, how, how can people get more of what you are uh, putting out there? So I'm finally um, a little active on Twitter. So I'm at Kamara Jones. So at C-A-M-A-R-A-J-O-N-E-S. My current work email address is cpjones, so c-p-j-o-n-e-s, at msm.edu. And uh, so those are the best ways right now. Okay, great. Is there a website or anything like that? Or you Not yet. I need to do that. I mean, so I am all over. Like, if you want to find out what I've done, you could just Google, Google Kamara Jones. And actually, um, my... I have a TEDx Emory talk that people like. So if you Google Kamara Jones TED talk, that's four of my allegories. If you Google Kamara Jones Gardner's tale, there's a video that was produced 18 years ago by CDC when I wasn't able to make it to a talk. It's kind of like, you know, it's not modern looking or anything, but there I describe three levels of racism, institutionalized or structural, personally mediated and internalized. And then I illustrate them with my most famous allegory, my Gardner's tale. So I recommend that to people. Okay. So yeah. And I mean, you can go on YouTube, I'm sure, and, and see. Well, it, there's lots of me there and I don't, I haven't pulled it together at all. Oh my gosh. All right. So I will put all of that in the, the show notes because um, this is, this will be on YouTube. So you can just look um, in the description and there'll be um, a description, uh, you know, the email and the, and your Twitter address. Um, thank you again for, for everything, for being the person you are and doing the work that you do and taking the time to speak with with somebody like me. Um, and, um, I wish you a safe, uh, safe return whenever you do, cause you're in, you're in Boston. Now you were just finishing a, a fellowship. Um, right. so you'll be coming back to Atlanta at some point. Um, so I wish you a safe journey and, um, I hope our paths cross again soon. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in my work and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's amazing. Uh, thank you're you. You're welcome. You're welcome.